We are delighted to have Samantha Leoy here this weekend and look forward to the message that she brings for us. Let's pray together. Thank you, God, for meeting us here. Help us to hear, to learn, and to grow together. Awaken and transform us. Mm. May your ways become our ways. Amen. Amen. Unmet expectations can be fertile ground for spiritual awakening. And we have a heavy dose of unmet expectations here in the healing of Naaman, the commander of the Aramean army, through the prophet Elisha. This cuts in a few directions. The first is this unlikely source of information for treatment plans. How does he hear about the man of God? From a little girl, an Israelite, who served Naaman's wife. This young girl, like Naaman's wife, remains unnamed in this story. She'd been taken from her family, her home, her country, by Naaman's soldiers. And now, she voluntarily um, recommends a healer for this one who had enslaved her. Naaman is a powerful man, physically and politically. He's a warrior, he's proven himself in battle, and he enjoys great favor with the king. But he had a skin disease, and there was nothing at all he could do about it. And so he ends up indebted to his enemy's daughter, over whom he thought he was master. Not only is it remarkable that this girl speaks up and offers this compassionate assistance, but it's incredible to me that they take her at her word. Naaman goes directly to the king with her advice, and the king doesn't question it either. It seems like none of the traditionally powerful people in this story are seen taking charge. They just keep following the direction of these unnoticed ones. The king of Aram, not even bothering to get the details straight, sends a letter to the king of Israel. It's like something about healing. Uh, He said you could heal him, so here he is. The king of Israel is likewise impotent and distressed like an anxious child. Heal him. He's picking a fight. Do you see how he's picking a fight with me? It's like he's having a little tantrum or something. So once again, the outlier, the prophet, is the one um, who is connected to a source of power that is utterly um, independent of armies and kings, comes to the rescue. You can almost see Elisha rolling his eyes. Why? What's he tearing his clothes for? Send the guy to me. Now all the while, Naaman keeps... um, keeps pretending that his riches mean something, that his position means something in this scenario. He's dragging his silver and his gold, his bulging suitcase of extra clothes, and all of his chariots and his horses all across the Israel um, countryside. Somehow he hasn't yet seen that they're irrelevant to his healing. Now, when he arrives at Elisha's house and he receives his instructions, which are sent 
through a messenger to dip seven times in this little muddy Jordan River, he just joins in with the other dignitaries who are acting like children. And, uh, you know, the Jordan River. He didn't even come out of his house. I thought there'd be some kind of incantation or waving of his hand over my wounds. And maybe in the meantime, he could admire my new suit from Damascus. It's offensive. Why did he come all this way, not even to meet this famed man of God? And now he's trying to just make him get dirty in this foreign and clearly un, you know, inferior river. Now fortunately, there are even more un, unnamed and ignored uh, people who are ready to offer compassion to this commander after his, his tantrum. His servants come along, even tenderly addressing him as father. Really, their kindness is beyond me. Follow the humbling instructions of the prophet father. If he had asked you to perform some great feat, wouldn't you have done it? So again, he follows the advice of the invisible ones. And he's made clean with skin as soft as a baby's behind. This is the foolishness of God, which is wiser than human wisdom. This is God's weakness, which is stronger than human strength. And though I wander from it often, I'm continually drawn back to these upside-down and subversive ways of God always calling and choosing the small and apparently insignificant ones, those who are invisible to most of us, the reluctant ones, the grumpy prophets, ones with speech impediments. And of course, Jesus himself becomes weak and vulnerable to the point of death, a death which continues to be a stumbling block absurd to many who think about it for very long. And yet, it reveals the victory and the wisdom and the power of God. God confounds our expectations for how divine power will function because it keeps arriving in vulnerable love. And this is the story of God's people from the very beginning. It's as if God is gently putting hands to our faces and turning our attention to where God has already been looking. To the suffering small ones. The enslaved ones who are crying out under their heavy burden. Deuteronomy 7 reminds us, it was not because you were more numerous than any other people that Yahweh set his heart on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. It was because Yahweh loved you and kept the oath that he swore to your ancestors that Yahweh has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. I guess we kind of think that's fine and it's very poetic as long as no one's pointing out that we are small and weak. If I could give a bit of testimony, I spent the last four and a half years in Allentown 
trying to get as close as I dared to people um, who were living at the edges, trying to follow a call I felt to develop friendships with people who are poor, with people who don't have access to things I've had access to my whole life. More than enough money to live on, dental care, ease with communicating in English, mental health. Living in Allentown was the first time, really, I had the chance to be in genuine relationship and friendship with people who have faced often debilitating traumas and are just surviving in one way or another. To get to know these people has been a gift of life for me. To be loved by them and experience their hospitality and friendship. One example is the Corinne community, and some of you I've already talked with about this, but um, in, to Whitehall, where I had been attending in just north of the city of Allentown, uh, we had a family who came uh, with their six children. There was a set of grandparents and parents and these kids. Their grandfather was an officer in the Korean Resistance Army and also a leader in the refugee camp in Thailand. And then getting to know them and then more continue to come and there's, um, we've gotten to know just so many characters. There's a woman named Tiki who is just a natural leader and you, you don't tell her how it is. She'll, she'll tell you. But she, she prays now in, in the service for us in Corinne, like she'll do the pastoral prayer sometimes at, at Whitehall. Um, and she's just a pistol. I really have enjoyed getting to know her. And the kids have come over to make cookies at our house and folded paper stars with me uh, during Advent time. And the adults have spent time in our house's neighborhood room. I, live in, I was living in community, and we had kind of a room that was used for uh, learning English. And they've been yeah, using that room to connect with other resources from the Lutheran uh, Children and Family Services in Allentown. And then there's this man uh, in our congregation at Whitehall. Um, he's this really big, funny, friendly guy um, with a huge heart and has spent some time um, being homeless. He's spent a little bit of time in prison. He has a, a diagnosis of bipolar, and we're friends. Um, yeah, I'm not in this friendship to heal him or like convince him to do his spiritual work or his emotional work. I get annoyed when he can't really listen to me talk about my life. And I listen to him tell me about the weather predictions, and he, he writes to me now that I'm in Vermont, he writes to me and he tells me all the temperature and the humidity and his daily activities and news from the congregation in Whitehall kind of keeping me posted. Somehow we're on the way together. It doesn't seem to have any big meaning. I wish I could make something more of it. When he gets manic, it makes me really sad. There's nothing I can really do about it. And yet, there's love in it. A love much bigger than anything I might muster up in order to be a good person. Our friendship is not changing the world. 
or maybe it is, I don't know, the larger meaning of it is hidden to me. I feel very uh, powerfully here my life being hidden with Christ in God. And somehow we're participating in each other's healing and unbinding. A stumbling block. Foolishness. Weakness and helplessness. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now all this time, I, I also, when I was living in Allentown and forming these kinds of relationships that I hadn't been able to have before, uh, I also wasn't able to be a pastor in the way that I had wanted to be. There was a restlessness. And um, even though I wanted to stay living in Allentown and being in this community um, with these people, many of whom had suffered much and who were teaching me so much and who I'd really come to love, There was no way to stay there and also serve a congregation as a pastor. It's weird. We Strangely, we ended up with this glut of pastors in Allentown, in the Lehigh Valley. Um, So besides not having a congregation to serve, I also, honestly, I wasn't very good at being poor. I was kind of terrible at it. This idea of, you know, this commitment that you're going to live below this certain line so I'm not paying war taxes. This is like, I'm, this is how I'm going to do my war tax resistance. I'm like committed to it. But I really, it wasn't, I wasn't able to really sustain it very well. And at the same time, and I'm just going to be really honest here, it seems, it feels, part of me feels like I'm letting go of like a radical life in like settling for a full-time salary with benefits. (laughs) But it seems that it's a humbling of a different kind. Um, If the prophet had told you to do something difficult, (laughs) why is it so hard for those of us who have some power to be on the receiving end? And I do think that we're all called to a radical departure from this accumulating and grasping for security ways of life all around us, if they could be called a way of life at all. And the time I spent in Allentown was a time of much learning and giving and receiving love, and I'm so grateful for that, and I'm sure that I'll bring it with me. A lot of the learning was dealing with the anger that eventually surfaces in attempting to be a peacemaker and in attempting to teach anybody else to be a person of peace. I grew in compassion for my own inner discrepancies. I learned to open my heart in risky trust. And perhaps that is what prepared me somewhat for the way that God is, as usual, messing with my expectations of how it will look to follow a radical call. Jesus is always signing us up for stuff that we didn't agree to. And yet, I felt felt in my very body um, a a real, um, I don't know even how, just a calm after the second interview with the search committee. Wouldn't it be amazing, among this group of 
really intelligent, accomplished people to know among you just Christ and him crucified. A stumbling block and a scandal. It doesn't yield to the question why. It simply shows us the way to freedom. It shows us the path that we will travel in following Jesus the Christ. That little girl is compelling to me. The little Israelite girl. What reason did she have to show loyalty to this man and compassion? What can I learn from her? Who do I know who is like her? God has chosen the weak, things that are not. This came back to me again. I read this Corinthians passage with um, some of my leaders in Vermont, and I was practicing with them a particular Bible reading method, and two of them, in, in reading it, felt this great relief because they don't see themselves as scholarly or particularly gifted. They have this self-identity of kind of being small or insignificant. And it was like the gospel was doing what it was supposed to do once again because they just expressed this, oh, oh, God is calling me. Oh, like I don't have to be the great debater of this age. And so again, in just in seeing them respond to the scripture, I saw the creator again looking out for the small, the humble ones. This um, consider your own call that not many of you were wise by human standards, not many of you were from the high society families, this has a familiar ring to it. As we said before about God choosing you, not because you were numerous people, In Deuteronomy, they're just constantly being reminded, remember that you were a slave in Egypt. Why are you not supposed to oppress the resident alien? Because you know the heart of a foreigner. You were foreigners in the land of Egypt. The whole thing is based on empathy. God keeps trying to get us to identify with the people at the bottom, like to see ourselves in them and so have compassion, just as the Creator has compassion on all that has been made. But these laws stop short of saying that there's actually power in weakness. It's basic biblical social justice, you know it well, I'm sure, that the powerful should care for the weak. Not only honoring God's previous deliverance and recognizing you were once in that place, but also honoring the image of God in every person, every human being. And we see that Yahweh pays special attention to the weakest members of society and those who suffer some stigma um, of whatever kind. But the teachings and example of Jesus take it further the powerlessness of this man hanging on a cross, the specter from which we'd rather turn our heads, challenges us to believe that God is paying tender attention to our own rejected, 
betrayed and undesirable parts. And that God asks us to turn our gaze there, to open those parts of ourselves to the light for our healing and to be reconciled to those parts of ourselves. It's foolishness. Couldn't we get a lot more done for the kingdom by leveraging our power for good? But as the Roman Empire is is crushing his people with taxes, Jesus says, consider the lilies. Don't spend so much time looking at Solomon's splendor and wondering what to do about it. Notice the birds and open your own heart to an entirely different source of power. Now it's important for us to acknowledge and accept the power that we do have. But it might be harder to accept that God is going to be using our weaknesses, our flaws, our despair, and that we have all we need already. Praise God that we're in the good company with young Mary who cried out God's victory in turning wealth and oppressive power on their heads as she walked in company with her firstborn whose first bed was a trough, who knew what it meant to be hungry, who ate with all the shameful ones, who talked with his enemies, who welcomed children, washed the feet of his students, was crucified in the brutality of the empire, and was raised to life by the power of God. This foolishness is our road to freedom. Thanks be to God.